Welcome to Isipa. My name is Amina Isid, and join me as I take you on a journey to explore identity, culture, and belonging. Take a seat as I take you through time, space, and various perspectives of cultural identity. Stay tuned to see where the journey will take us today. All right, so this episode, I am going to be on the other side of the microphone, and I'll be sharing with you all a little bit about my experience in going back home. So I went back four years in a row. I don't know if Kobe or the Lakers ever had a four-peat, but I went for a four-peat, and everybody was like, what are you doing? Why do you keep going back? What's happening? Why don't you just pick one or the other? And it was my own personal journey. So in this episode, really kind of go in and take it back to the beginning, to 2015 when I was a grad student doing research, to the summer after that, and then even now into the and thinking about the future. So Suhud is moderating this episode, facilitating this conversation as she likes to do. So, you know, we kind of, it's a bit longer than other episodes, but I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to share parts of your story, like I said, the floor is always open. I'm always willing to kind of speak about this experience with other people. So let me know what you all think and enjoy this episode. Well, hello, hello, it's me again. <laughs> uh, my name is Suhur, and today Amina is going to be on the, is it the receiving side? I guess it's the receiving side. So basically, today you are the interviewee, and I am the interviewer, okay? So you're the guest today, this is my show today. So welcome everybody. Amina, I'm are you ready? Are you ready for this? I'm as ready as I will ever be, I guess. <laughs> okay, we're not gonna. We'll see how I like life on this side. Let's see. Let's see. You've been you've been questioning people. Have you've got bare questions? You know, and you've never have answers. So today we need all the answers you can give. <laughs> all right, I'll see what I got. Okay, today we're doing a couple of you know um, we're gonna ask you a couple of questions about your own experience. You've been asking people about the experience, so we would like to hear your experience and how you found like um, being back home. And we want to ask you about your research and why Somalia now, why back home, why Somalia? Do you know? Yeah. Okay. So my first question is. When was the first time you thought about, okay, I'm going to go back home and you decided to purchase that ticket? What was the motivation behind that? So the motivation and when I purchased the ticket, like um, from when I purchased the ticket and when I thought about going. So when I was an undergrad, like I said earlier, like a lot of what we talked about was the identity piece. And then I went to London um, my freshman year of college. It was like before 2010. So that was going to London was the first time I saw like cultural identity in like a way that the two worlds could come together because I live in white America like you know a white black America so when I went to London you know you go to South Hall and it's all like Hindi Bengali like it wasn't a monolith everyone knew what country everybody was from what their culture was they knew where you could go eat their food and everybody respected the fact that everybody came from somewhere but in America you know our cultural policy is assimilation so everybody's American once you hit American soil so everybody kind of becomes the same so when I went to London was the first time I was like "Ooh, like 
Somali. Like, let's see what's up. I went to Blue Ocean, Shepherd's Bush. Like, that was the first time I saw like young Somali people like speaking in Somali and in English. And it wasn't seen as something that was bad because in the states, if you still had the culture that you know you were just new to the country, Willy Mad Lakapsan and Maraikanga. And that's a time when people were going to Somalia for the first time. Like young pe- people who are a couple years older than me finished university. They worked a couple years, and people were going back home for the first time, like as adults. So. After I finished undergrad, I had no plans for life after graduation. I just wanted to go to the country. And my cousin graduated before me and she did that. She lived in London and her and her mom and her cousins, they all went back home. And she told me like in 2012, she was like, going back home heals a part of yourself that you didn't realize was missing, you know? Because when you grow up or when you're raised, born and raised and grow up in different countries, you're just kind of, there's always like this in-betweenness that you're doing, right? In between your family life, mm-hmm. in between your friends at school or outside. And nobody's really just going to get it unless they are like you, you know? So she was like, going back home heals a part of you that you didn't know was missing. And I was like, bet, that's all I need. And I like, and then I had romanticized it from there, right? That at the time when I was in undergrad as well, I had this professor who did a lot of research about Rwanda. And she, that was like her happy place. You know, this place, this country that experienced genocide, neighbors killed each other, but she loved Rwanda. And it was like these green rolling hills. I think they call it like the country of the million hills or something like that. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, going back home is going to be like that too. You know, it's like this devastated, worn, torn place that's rebuilt itself. And it's just going to be so, like, it's also so narcissistic. Like, I, maybe it's narcissistic, even like really fucked up to even say that, like, like, in a way. But that's kind of what I thought, you know, the going back home was going to be like. So. And then I went to, um, I kind of worked a couple years, like, I was like, dad, let's go. And I applied for this other fellowship program. Nobody was going to Somalia. And my dad was like, I'm not going back. Like last time I went, the country was war torn. I don't want to go back. And so I just waited until I was in grad school. And so then um, February 2015, I bought my ticket and then I left in June. I like went to Hargeisa in June. And from February to June, I was like, so like, Oh my god, I can't believe I did that. And I was like so was that before your grad school or after your grad? That was my first year of grad school. Mm, so you went to um Hagesa the first year of your of your grad school, yeah? Yeah, so grad school in the States is two years, so I went for the summer in between to do research. That was like my excuse. And I always when I finished undergrad, I also was part of me was like, let me do my masters and then go to some go back home while I'm in grad so school. You 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 initially had the idea of doing your research back home anyways even before you started, is that right? Yeah, when I was in undergrad because I was like it's not going to me going back home is not going to be meaningful unless I do it through school. Because then it might just be a trip or, you know, like, what am I going to be able to contribute if I just go for vacation? Interesting. Yeah, actually, that's that. I've always thought your your idea just came for your research after you went there and experienced. Because that's an interesting point. Without you knowing what's out there, you decided to do your research from there. Yeah. Well, and my research actually was about... Um, like I said, like 
2010, 2011, there was、um, people at UCL that had this big, huge movement at the time. It was like Operation Restore Hope or Operation Go Back Home. It was like the Somali stu- like Students Association or Professionals Group was、mm. starting in London. And a lot of people were they were saying, after you finish school, everyone go back home to the country and contribute. So they would post these amazing pictures, you know, like of Lido Beach and all of these things. And so I, my research was actually about what does life look like on the other side. Side of those pictures, you know, is the reality is it similar to what we are seeing on social media? And that's when I realized that social media really fucked me up. And like, <laughs> that I feel like if I did spend so much time on social media, maybe I would have never gone to Somalia. But I just was always watching how Somalis were doing things online,、um, just so I could like be clued up. And then that's what made me also want to like go home and you know somalis are great marketers so it's、yeah. like oh go back home so you had you had something in mind initially like you thought okay i'm gonna i want to go here i'm gonna do my research what was the first thing that you were looking for through your research like for example like what kind of like what was the title of your research in your head before you went And did it change after you went? I don't know. Ex-、uh, I don't even know、um, exactly what the title was. But the idea of my research at the time was to say, okay, Somalia and Somaliland specifically. Somaliland exists because of diaspora engagement. You know, if you look back on the history, the SNM started in the diaspora. They mobilized in the diaspora. They organized people to then come in and what the kind of lahuria and stuff like that. So, what does diaspora engagement? Um, how is that going to look like for the next generation? Was、um, what my thesis kind of was going to be about, knowing that the diaspora were so meaningful to Somaliland existing, to Somalia remaining afloat through the civil war. Like、um, Somali remittances were more than international foreign aid at one point, you know.、Mm. So knowing all of those type of things,、um, and I think actually a part, another, it wasn't my formal research, but One part of my research outside of my thesis was to kind of understand mahala wa the kulkulai. Like you know, we were so centralized, and we, the, the older generation had this diehard sense of wadani nimo and Somali nimo, walat nimo, and why is everybody now just kabir ko that you magale do or tulu do the unbe kalashegeyan? So、mm. um, that was my personal research question, but my official thesis was about. Um, what does life look like on the other side of these pictures, and how is diaspora's relationship to the country, or how how is their experience going to affect further involvement? So I thought that it would be a lot of people that were living there and enjoyed being there, and we're going to kind of you know continue that kind of、um, like life in a way,、um, mm. and you know it would and that would also then bring upon more diaspora engagement. So you had sort of questions initially, like where you said, "Oh, okay, like this is the questions that I'm looking answers for." But did that change when you went there, and did you have to, you know, like adjust, and did you face a different reality than what you initially thought? Yeah, I mean, so to um the the title of my thesis ended up being when reality crashes the imagination. And I think it was because reality crashed in my imagination of what the experience there was going to be like. But I think honestly, for a lot of people, I kind of shifted away because a lot of people I was meeting, I didn't meet too many people that lived and worked there. A lot of people, especially because of my time constraints while I was there, and also what I had access to. 
where I was um, like socializing and um, kind of like, you know, my networks at the time wouldn't have and my and being new to the country, honestly, I wouldn't have found somebody who was living there for four or five years, because at that point, I think a lot of times, you know, maybe you can speak to this more because you've done that. But after a while, there's a honeymoon period of going back home where you're still like a diaspora. And you're like, oh, this is all new. And let me like meet so many people and network with people. And then after the honeymoon period, you settle into life like a normal person who lives there. And so anymore you know and so then you're also missing from the scene but at that point I was just finding everybody who was in the scene and still new you know so a lot of people were only there for a couple of months at the time they still obviously were diaspora because they were hanging out with other diasporas um, and so that was a different experience um, than what I thought my thesis would be and because of my own like issues I I just was asking everybody like so how is like how is this for you because why yapsana and children by chuge i was just like how is this going for you so how are you navigating this and how are you navigating this and then it ended up being a kind of different conversation um so it wasn't about those who are living and working and um, really contributing to the country and stuff like that it became a, a different story about people who had waited so long and had done so much it ended up being about this homecoming journey so a lot of the people that i interviewed like all of them were born in a different country than the country that they were raised in and they might be living in a different country now you were one of my research subjects even so it was like all these 90s babies like everyone born at the end of the 80s like everybody like they spoke multiple languages lived in multiple countries and everybody was like, I just want to come back home and, you know, see the country, see if I can contribute and be somewhere where, you know, you thought you'd have some privilege. You thought that a Gala person couldn't say, like a Gala person wouldn't be able to say to you in Hergesa, you know, like, yeah, who are you? We don't care about you, you know? But then nobody expected for the Somali man who might be even the same tribe as you to say, say yeah, I'm like, you know? And that <laughs> was like the most glaring like crux of my thesis. Everybody's experience of expecting to be in a Lesord way or expecting to be welcomed when they come home to only be rejected by Yatai. Like, we, we, don't, we don't know you. Like, you don't hold any credibility here. And that was something, yeah, that was something that I think nobody, including myself, was ready for. Um, and I'm like, all right, fine, you don't know me, I don't have any credibility. But on a basic level, could I just like function here, you know, and be able to do things? <laughs> and that was accept, accept me as I am. Yeah. And they, even they, I was like, well, what's the, because, you know, like, okay, so like, Zuhur, you grew up in London, right? So I don't know if it's the same mm. for you, but I, like in North America, if you can put together five Somali words and they see that you give a shit about Dakanka, like you are top, you know, like you get this little like badge <laughs> from the aunties and the uncles, like sad reality, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, like it's just kind of like so that scene is something that's important. And when I went back home, the thing that killed me was like, all right, fine, don't give me no like golden star, even though I'm Urda, like you know, so I'm used to that like validation for everything I do, but. Don't give me the golden star, but on a basic level, does Somali Nimo still mean anything? And that yeah. Somali Nimo would mean that we had like a dehaya. I know Kalabakov or Kalam, like, you know, Kaladu and Kukornai, like, grew up in two different countries. Like, but the Somali Nimo would be our middle ground. And there was no middle ground, like, I think for, like, at the time. And 
Um, even now, I think it, that looks very different. But that was also another thing that I was like, oh, wow. Like, so that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so I didn't even know what to do yeah. because my whole life, Somali Nimo meant something. It meant that you saw another random smile person on the street. I mean, it would still mean something yeah. in some ways, you know? Like, uh, but there. No, sure. I mean, I mean, I agree with you. Like, it's... Um... I actually want to ask you about that and particularly what you found in your research. And for example, like you had this expectations and then you met this reality, which were completely or maybe somewhat different. Um, I want to ask you the question, what you found, was it like something that you expected somewhat or completely different? And actually, I want you to talk about your findings. like. What was it like? Presented this research at the 2018 Somali Studies Conference in Hargeisa. And I found actually the paper that I read off of there. So <clears throat> let me pull that up and look at it real quick. Um, but I never expected, like I thought, I never expected for the polarity to be as strong as it was. I think a lot of it was naivety. Like, um, the war, like, didn't affect my life personally, but that's a huge, like, that has changed the context in which Somalis deal with each other to this day. And so the lasting effects of the war and the state collapse also just means that they're... Somali, like, that there's just so many, like, glaring, like, disparities between those in the diaspora and those who are still living back home when it comes to access to resources, lifestyle, all of these things. And while that's still there, I feel like for our parents' generation, in some ways, I feel like the Hadith is still there. Like, my mom has not been back to Somalia since she left in the 1980s. She still talks to her siblings every day, though. Like, so she wouldn't be considered, I guess, as an outsider. But for us, we weren't born there. Like, you know, if you come for the first time or the first couple of times, if you don't have cousins that you grew up with or people there that already know you, then I guess that you are a stranger. Nobody knows you. And so it's like we don't care about you because we don't it's not that we don't care about you because we don't know you but we don't know you so we don't care about you so my whole thesis ended up being and for me it was the labeling and then what that meant and i feel like that was like that's what a lot of my thesis ended up being about so it was um it was just about the ways in which like the um label basically just kind of pushed all the diaspora returnees to like the periphery of society because that's like uh that's a very strong way of saying, oh, you don't belong here, like, and you're not one of us, right? But then also, the way in which it kind of is detrimental for some people is that then there's notions of privilege that are attached to being diaspora, being qurpachog. So, like, I had one research participant who is diaspora, he came from, like, Pakistan or India, you know, like, these countries, Southern Asia, that he doesn't have a, he still has a Somali passport, he doesn't have an yeah. American passport or British passport. So then when he gets stopped at like the controller, you know, like, you know, we know you have it. <laughs> and he's like, dog, I don't have anything. Would I be here if I like had something, you know, like, so then he's, all, and then he's meant to perform and what it means to be diaspora. I'm not, we came from, you came from England. I came from America. We might have it. But I mean, at the same time, we were like, 
in our 20s like we really like you were working there like i was interning there we didn't really have money like that at all but i was like "Eh, but you guys are like the diaspora like you know you guys should have it i'm like you guys might have more money than we do you know like we're living on credit cards and student loan debt and so so that was like um a big part of like what i talked about like and and for me i think another thing that i also talked about was so so hergesa is obviously very different than what our parents even saw back then. And I think, like, if you look at Hargeisa today, like, Somaliland is a country that exists because of the diaspora's engagement and support and things like that. Like I said, like, the president has a British passport. He lived in England. So it's kind of like this, wala wala walaqai, you know, whatever quote-unquote local culture is, whatever diaspora engagement is. But people pick are picking and choosing and also, like, it's a new social fabric that's different than what our parents witnessed before the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like everybody has to get used to this new way of doing things. So if you come from Dibidaha, regardless of how much you are prepared for Somali life, like you, <laughs> you're not prepared for Hargeisa um, <laughs> in 2015 at the time. Like, and I think also being there that summer for me that was my first time I was there and there was like a physical there was physical spaces where diaspora were congregating together and then also face uh facing pushback so like if I went any other summer or under any other time I think my research might have been different my experience might have been different but I feel like that summer there were so many things that I thought were like I could literally because I had to theorize my summer in this paper I can literally say this is what I liked and why I liked it. And this is what was happening. And this is what was happening. So so I think ultimately it really comes back to, I don't think it's a matter of culture, like in terms of Somali Dakanahan. I think it's in terms of local culture at the time it, to assert power, claims to a place. So my research question was, um, I was illustrating the way Somali diaspora are asserting their claims to territory while rejecting local culture. And so I did this by exploring gendered experiences, communication barriers, and community. Um, how diaspora are like kind of building their own community or kind of what community means in both contexts. Yeah. So I argued that Soma- young Somalis in the diaspora have fluid notions of identity. So by fluidity, I mean exactly kind of what I was talking about earlier, that like you for example you live in london you grew up in the arab speaking world like you know all you speak somali you speak english you speak arabic all of these things are a part of you and you could pick and choose what you want works for you like zuhurahan and then um but it's not like so you can because all all, like my research subjects and a lot of young somalis and diaspora they've grown up in three four different countries they speak multiple languages they know what it's like to be a newcomer a new place and then they pick and choose what works for them or how they're going to navigate being in that space so i said they can't acclimate to rigid notions that limit their agency in hargeisa and so the biggest i have a sociological background so agency in this case means your right to choose what you're going to do how you're going to do it and when you want to do it so i think like um ultimately it's a a lot of what my research ended up being about was control and culture and so it's not even really a bit about it's not really it is about identity. I don't think it's about Somali identity in the terms of, oh, like, <laughs> it's not about that argument. What that argument yeah. is doing is being divisive and asserting power and control. So a lot of the research that I kind of used was about third culture, third space. So there's a dominant culture, which is 
like you know whatever dominant cultures and headgays. I feel like it's a bunch of others like that are really or in yeah, Somaliland that are cultures yeah being controlled, being like judged, <laughs> being like you have to just fit into whatever everyone else finds the norm, and it's just rejecting also any other. It's just like there's lack of acceptance. I'm not even gonna lie. There's lack of acceptance in the in that strong and dominant culture of Hedgesa, I guess. Yes, there. Yeah, and be that, very critical, but <laughs> I don't even think that's critical. I think that's a very fair analysis, to be honest, because I think it's not even about diaspora versus locals i think yeah. when we were able when we were there we saw youth get together and youth facing pushback the power and the dominant control also controls the young people a lot of times when you speak to people there they say oh my god you know they're more understanding of like mm-hmm. us coming in as westerners and what we're used to you know like what's happening in Burra at the moment i don't know if you've been following but yeah um, no i've seen go ahead talk about yeah. my god so, <laughs> so it's like what what's what's happening over there? It's just like people cannot have the free will. Like obviously not to change the dakan and the culture over there. It's just it's just like you know like a regular norm like the rest of the country. So it's like they are applying different rules and regulations on one city because of who's dominant in that city. For example, there's obviously a lot more sheikhs and stuff like that. So apparently. You can't have mixed weddings, you can play music in your wedding, you can do this, you can do that. There's so many rules that are against the law of the country, but then people are applying it there because they feel like, oh, we're the dominant, you know, culture. So you have to follow what what the majority of or the community leaders of, of the city says, despite even if you like even if the Dalinyaro or the people that, you know, the, the, the local community don't accept the facts. But just they kind of being forced to do this. So I don't know. A lot of people probably will say different, will have a different opinion on this. But that's how I see it. It's like people forcing yeah. people to follow. And it's also like when it comes down to it, um, if you say, OK, music is not allowed. Right. Like, Because I think the biggest argument right now is about the music in Bra mm. is banned. You can't play music okay, you can't play music, then is that the biggest issue that we should be facing like or dealing with right now? You know, like... Is it the haramness of the music or is it the haramness of all the other things that's happening in the city? (laughs) Yeah, like, and so, but this is a perfect leeway. So a lot of my research that summer ended up being about like the arts and culture or like a culture space. So like when you have the arts... You have like dominant culture and then you have like um, just subjugated culture. So like yeah. you have two polarities, one that has power, one that doesn't have power. So in so it's like the local Hargesa culture is the dominant culture. And then I guess the the repressive or the subjugated culture would be your quote unquote Western culture. Right. So mm. in between the two rubbing together, then there's a third space that comes out. And so um, I think the third space is a lot what I talked about, and that is the arts and the arts and culture, like arts especially, because the arts allows for there to be expression, right? So the dominant culture is like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But I don't even like, and a lot of my thesis was about a cup of art, because do you, I don't know if you were there at the end, but do you remember when they opened up a mudfish right next to cup of art? Yeah, I do remember that. Yes, yes, I do. And then what the owners did was they built a wall. Okay, and yeah. then they wrote "Espresso yourself." And you know what's and- funny is like the way the Murphy is 
is being accepted in that dominant culture and is seen as a normal thing but a bunch of young people having like a laugh or having coffee together or sitting together was seen as like an absurd thing that's something that's such an out like you know out of the ordinary kind of yeah and it was like i mean and that was the time you know so it's like if you're giving daliada with the kachoga like some kind of medidalo because honestly you guys all know during you guys all had a great time so it's also like like how come you won't give them a space to enjoy themselves and be young people that's um you know something i don't understand as well but I think it, they, they wrote, they put that, that wall. Yeah, so I thought that was such a ingenious way of dealing with the literal pushback, right? Then they put up this wall and then it said, espresso yourself. And everybody on it wrote like their name, what country they were from. Some people wrote in Arabic. Some people wrote postal codes, country codes. And that really showed that like you could be, you know, you didn't have to be a rigid person. It wasn't like we were only going to accept you if you were this way. Like, people, like, you know, spoke Arabic and they all sat together. People who spoke Somali were able to do poetry night in Somali. People who spoke English were able to do poetry night in English. And they were all accepted in that space because it was a space that allowed everybody to be expressive and, you know, come together as quote-unquote outsiders. But also, like, that's a unifying place in which you don't have to follow the rigid notions of identity but you can come as your full self and i think that that physical location or that even cafe shop existing in that way really also affected my research because that's a physical manifestation of the theory you know like how and how it was successful because we all met there every we all went there you know like so it showed that there was a need for it that people wanted it and it wasn't just a diaspora place you know like a lot of artists and young people in the city um came there and you knew if you we were going to meet different people and since that like you don't meet people in the same way in Hargeisa. No, um, not anymore. Not not like that anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sultan is somewhat like similar, like but not as that level where it was the only place that people could just actually meet and stuff. Yeah. So that also, so that was kind of my research findings. Like, and then also, like at the end of it, I also realized that. Um, um there was just so much it was just like every person i talked to was like if you don't do things the way that they're doing it then they don't then they reject you (laughs) it was like even if you don't talk like this and if you don't scream and it's like i think there's a huge like um culture issue in some ways like communication is different in the west than it is in somali lands and african societies in general Mm. um you know like and there's just no space i think even for there's like no grace. You know, how people do things. And I just felt like and I keep harping about this. It's been like six years, but I'm still like it took me a long time to come to terms with this or try to make sense of it. And then one day I was in my like Javier's neighborhood and I just looked ridiculous. But I had like a turban on, I had sunglasses and this long like black primark cardigan and my cardigan got stuck in my and all these school kids come out, all these young girls, they're like maybe elementary school kids and they're all wearing like a dalad that matches their like um dresses or whatever they were yeah, wearing. Half gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's and then they're cute. all look they're all looking at me like, what the fuck? And I'm like, what's the problem? And then I realized, oh my God, everybody looks the same. Like, you know, everybody looks <laughs> the same. 
everybody like they all grew up the same way you know everybody knows how things are done here and i obviously look crazy to them right now but to me i think i look cute and like you know and i'm like really well i still don't know what's the problem but i'm wearing like <laughs> i'm wearing like it's just all oh, yeah. i got like what, what's going on here because the yeah. only person that they see with no headscarf on or the proper chair which is about is actually the mentally ill people on the road just you know okay you know that? no i didn't know that well like that might have really changed how i but i also didn't have the patience like i not even i didn't have the patience but i just feel like that summer i i mean i I was doing so many different things i never sat down and tried to learn at the time you know i was like i'm going here i'm gonna go here and i'm just like i'm here in the country what do you want you know like so i never ha- i didn't have enough time to really like just sit down and understand like so yeah. that might have changed how i dress though because that would have probably made things a lot different for me because mm-hmm. i had a bunch everybody just wanted to say something to me all the time oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like on the little corrections and the little passive aggressive oh, no, no. my cool shit like mm. and i'm just like Ugh. my my um my follow question is um finding out all that and also meeting people over there and like you know like kind of familiarizing yourself with the culture and you know knowing what to expect how did that build your relationship to the country or like how did you follow up that journey like initial journey from 2003 um i think it was still like a continuous learning curve but i think the more uh then it was like what might have really ticked me off or really bothered me like the first time that i thought was like such a big like after like my first summer for example i realized okay this is i've only talked to diaspora about like what it's like in the country so then the second summer when i came back i just talked to daliera what the kokore and i'm like so are you guys happy like how do you guys feel about this and i wanted to really like learn about things on the other side because i realized i had spent so much of that first summer being in a diaspora space although i wasn't always in a diaspora space but like we lived a diaspora existence you know like it was just um we only like hung out with each other and then we tried to make the country adapt to us so then the second time i was like okay i know how things are done i'm going to just um try to adapt as much as possible and i hated that because i think i felt like i had to give up who I was or what I liked or and that second summer too my dad was with me and my dad was just like and when watching my dad adjust to Hargeisa and he couldn't adjust he had problems with all of these things and he was like and I can't and that made me realize that I don't have to accept everything in the name of Somali I don't know like but I don't have to accept all of it you know just to be there um you kind of like accepted that fact that you don't have to accept everything you you don't have to behave like how everyone else behaves yes and that was huge for me because that was really hard like that I had really like that second summer that was that was like the biggest problem that I had I was like okay well I know if they think that they see me laughing all day oh 
everyone called me I'm in a year that second summer and I literally was just boxing <laughs> I was beefing everybody that second summer I said I was like I literally went one by one and I asked everyone that I worked with I was like how old do you think I am and one guy was like 21 and I said you know I just finished my master's degree like how do you think logically and I kept saying logically logically these people don't care about logic the way you got yeah. you know like they don't give a shit so that's why I was like I need to stop taking myself so that seriously comes from a place of like oh this person doesn't know a lot about this and therefore they are yar okay like it's yeah I, from that place and I and I'm okay like I you can't little ball me you know like I don't like that like I, then the biggest thing is that lack of respect that comes with that right like so the ignorance if you see then people treat them like they're dumb you know like they're like oh they, you don't know anything and it's like this person maybe they came through seven countries you know yeah. maybe they're a professor <laughs> back where they came from but because they speak English with an accent you've discredited them yeah. and so going to Somalia Maliland for me was like experiencing like I was born in America you know like so it was like experiencing being an immigrant I guess and I was like yo I have no idea how any immigrants survive like because this is it's so like getting used to a completely different way of life than where I'd come from was so hard and then I was like how did our parents even adjust to America then I literally had to think about them and was like how the freak did they do this so I think like I was just very cognizant of all the layers I felt like the social negotiations um and I chose that every single one was going to be a problem for me so then after I learned that maybe you should just kind of like not worry about that and worry about whatever when I started focusing more on just what I wanted to do like I think the beginning part was like you came all this way and you want them to say so do well what the kind of so do well you know welcome home and then when you don't get that then you get the hazing and my my teacher always used to say they wouldn't joke with you if you weren't part of them like you don't joke with strangers you joke with yeah. your family and i was like i don't like joking i don't understand jokes <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like they're just so mean and then she's like they wouldn't joke with you if you weren't a family and i was just like I don't, but why do they joke with a straight face though? I was like, I don't understand that. <laughs> um, so once I kind of like looked at it all that like this was my experience and I could make it my own, then that's when everything changed for me. And then I was like, okay, you think that I'm this and this. Okay, that's fine. I don't really need to explain myself to you. I ain't got by school for Like, you know, I know like, but when the first couple summers I was young, you know, like, and I wasn't there yet maturity wise as well. And I was so I was just raging like the second summer I raged on everybody and I literally was like yo if I need to be in this country then I'm just gonna speak back as much as possible because this is not a way to survive how is every but single was random because like because it was it different because the first summer you were the visitor you were just there for a couple yeah. of days to explore to observe but the second summer you were put into a situation where you had to work and I worked no something. I worked the first summer too Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so okay. the thing, like the first summer, but it, I was still new. So, okay, I, let me explain. So the second summer, I think the problem was also I was completely burnt out. The second, the first summer I had no, I, I didn't know what to expect. I was new. So, and once I found my little happy places, I was like, oh, yes. Like, you know, like uh, we all like hung out. Like, and then I, it was kind of like after you go through the beginning stages of when it's like you first get there, you're like, oh my God, all of this is so bad. And I was all around so many people that literally like there was no way we could have a middle ground, you know, like. So once I found people that I could have a middle ground with, then I was okay. And then I think that was the biggest thing is I realized 
<laughs> I realized at this point in life that I'm a huge people person. So I need, like, I had different pockets of people for different things. So when I missed America, I would go hang out with my cousin and then we'd watch Love and Hip Hop and we'd talk shit in English and then, you know, we would have fun. And then when I wanted to go out, I would go hang out with the girls and we'd go to the cafe. And then if I wanted to just chill outside, I'd go to Ayeyo and then and I knew like that in each situation, I was there for a certain amount of time for a certain reason. And then I would go on to the next thing. But the second summer, I think I worked too much and I didn't rely on those social networks in the same way. And so I like literally like the first day I came to Hedgesa, I literally went straight to the office. And then <laughs> and yeah. I just kept... You were there for a purpose. You were like, boom, I need to work. And you were put into a situation where there was you were dealing more with the local culture rather than the diaspora or you know that option that you just spoke about it was gone it was i mean on a basic level like my like my two closest people that i hung out a lot with the year before when i came back they weren't in the honeymoon phases anymore you know there were people who they were people who had stayed in the country so when i come back and i'm like hey guys adventure i'm so excited to come back for the new because i love newness and i love new experiences new adventures new things you know so i was coming back and i wanted a new adventure a new thing and they were like we live here now you know like they were low-key kind of depressed and they were just like we live here there's no new adventure there's nothing exciting we've been living in this place for a year so good luck so it was kind of like everything all my like quote-unquote like social all my networks or like my safety bubbles the year before they were completely different even i didn't even know how to get there so it was like i came back thinking that i was going to continue off from the summer before <laughs> from and, where you left off yeah from where i left off and it was completely brand new and then i was like i need to readjust again it was like more re- it was more traumatizing than the first time because i thought that i had earned my stripes you know that i knew how things were done now and it and was, was like certain expectations of you where you had to be like oh we're not we're not gonna you know babysit her anymore or you know tell yeah. her what to do because she already knows now yeah yeah but then but then I made like new friends and then or like I made like I was around different types of different kinds of people and then I realized that like it's also very cyclical like and then so it's like you weren't really special you were just like the next one in line you know like <laughs> that was also the other thing so I was like oh okay go 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 so I was like dog but I still want the shekel and the red carpet like what are we doing here I know uh, so but then I think also I came really that second summer I think with um I was gonna live there like I told them myself. <laughs> oh, okay, that's brave of you. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I mean, like if you saw me, you would have never thought that. But that second time, I finished grad school, and then I was gonna come back, and I was like, okay, I can do a year there, uh, you know, like I have the time and the space, and then, I and then I think once the idea of that settled in. Then I was like, oh my God, that also made it different. That it wasn't just the holiday anymore. It was like, okay, let's see if you can really do this. And then I was like, I absolutely don't even want to entertain the idea of doing this. So I was like, get me out of here on the first thing smoking. And that was like, you know. Although that happened and you were like, oh, the reality hit you and you didn't want to live there anymore. But then that didn't stop you from coming back. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm kind of dramatic as a person. So um, it was like, I think a lot of it ended up being about, so I was like, okay, cool. I didn't have the romanticized trip that I thought I was going to have, the romanticized homecoming um, in the beginning. But you still, like, that was, I could, like, even now I'm like, dog, I never thought I would go to Somalia. I would ever see Dur Somalia, you know? Like, it was just so, like, so, so far away from my head. So I was like, you did that. And then I also, I think the doing it by myself was kind of, like, not the smartest idea, but, you know, it was my experience, I guess. So I want to ask you a question. So um, the first two times you seem like you didn't find it as you wanted it to be. Yeah, but yeah. you still came like you still came back to it and you still yeah. like went there over and over again for yeah. multiple years is there one thing you can pinpoint that made you go back there over and over again despite all the issues you've experienced you know i was talking to um what is about this the other day so we're like it's easy to complain about it because those are tangible types of things that you can point out say this was the problem this was the problem this was the problem and you know this issue happened at this time and this is the circumstance but i think about the value of it and what kept me going back is something intangible i just felt like so despite how many how much i'll complain about it, i still felt like i was so like in a space and within that larger context so it's not just about going home and saying i'm in my country but very specifically within that finding a community of like-minded people that have like similar values to you that are passionate about the same type of things that want to have the same kinds of experience that was the sweet spot for me um that like a lot of the people even like a lot of people i met that first summer like we still keep in touch on a regular basis like this podcast is like six years after i went to hadgesa for the first time (laughs) and a lot of the people that have been on it so far like that i know personally we're still talking about hadgesa like so it's kind of like yeah it kind of shows how important like that was regardless if it was good or bad for you it still is something that you know is meaningful okay let's say going back to the year of 2015 and you are like in maybe beginning of 2015 let's say spring 2015 march for example and the 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 thing that's on your mind is to go back home what have you like if you had the opportunity or if you knew what you know today what would you do differently and also would you even like impact on that journey to begin with Oh my God. Um, that is a huge question. So when I was going there at the time, I was so nervous. I thought I was going to die. I think I had like a lot of anxiety. I should have learned how to meditate back then or something. Um, and I didn't even know how to speak of it as anxiety. Back then too, I had so many rules for myself and how everything should be and this and this and this. And going to Somaliland really kind of forced me to like calm down like um i think because i was able to focus on on things outside of myself like um but so i think i would have told myself back then to really journal like i refused to journal or document my experience there at the time uh and even the second summer when i came back my friend bought me a journal and she's like could you journal this time so you're not still talking about it out loud And I was like, okay, and I didn't. But I really wish I had a way of documenting it, even if it was like voice notes for myself. But I think looking back on it, some of it might have been like, I just remember sometimes I would wake up and I would like think that I was in America, like like, in my house. 
and I woke up and I'm in Hargeisa and I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm just like, it was like that. <laughs> it was like, I'm not in America, I'm in Hargeisa. That was like, so like disjointing. Um, so I would tell myself to journal and would I embark on it? I mean, I say that I feel like it distracted me a lot from <laughs> what I wanted for myself and my life. Um, but I don't think I could say that I would tell my, I think if there's one thing I would have said, so that first summer, that was the first summer that I feel like I was really willing, after I got used to it, I was really willing to stay. And I think when I came back any other time after that, I was like, oh, I can't live here for like a long time or whatever. Like I can't do this. So I I would say maybe that I would stay longer. Like I think the three months wasn't enough time. Like I even had a job yeah. interview while I was there and I was like but I'm leaving in two weeks and they looked at me like why are you wasting our time and for me I it wasn't an it wasn't even an idea that I could like take a pause from my grad degree and work there for a year which I totally could have and I think really would have been nice to do so like um because my master's was fully funded at the time and stuff like that that had nothing to do with like you know um so that's the one thing I wish I would have just stayed a little bit longer but I think also I I wouldn't want to do anything differently because it was what it was like you know it's kind of naive now to just be like this is the first time that you've even been to an african country and you need to accept it so much and live here and you know get used to everything like that's a bit naive to say in hindsight but i just thought that it was my country so i'd be able to get on you know so i'm like 24 i was also really young to do that like you're still i was kind of immature in a lot of ways and things like that so um things that were issue then might not be an issue now but you know mm. i think it comes with age and time so i wouldn't want to take i wouldn't want to do anything differently because it all ultimately has led up yeah. to this now and where we're yeah, at so alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah we're grateful for that journey because we met you <laughs> um, yeah okay i would want to go on to another part of you amana which is your love for somali music and somali culture and some other arts and culture, I would say. Uh-huh. And I want to ask you, when did you develop this love for Somali music and Somali arts and culture? Was it because of that journey? And when you were, when you saw the culture and like you got introduced to that, or was it from an early on age? When when did you develop that love? I like now I distinctly so like I said when I went to London like I was 18 19 so um it wasn't the first time I went to London but it was the first time I went by myself and so that was when I was kind of getting back into like when I turned 18 I wanted to kind of get back into like Somali stuff like I felt like my teenage years once I had a choice I refused it like I was like oh, I'm American you know like and then but when I was a kid I grew up in a house where like I could only listen to Somali music and this was like always like the biggest like fight it was like how come um English music is had out but Somali music isn't you know like that type of thing so um I could only listen to Somali music as a kid and then I my aunt actually introduced me to English music when I was like nine or ten and then I really <laughs> got into music like she bought me like this Backstreet Boys millennial like millennium CD and then we used to watch like um because we didn't even have like MTV or anything like that in my house in the states so we used to watch I we used to watch music videos all day long and like she used to listen to the Fugees and all of this stuff so 
Um, once I got into music though, like music was a huge part of like, that was my thing. Like I might not have talked a lot or anything, but I was always listening to music. I remember in undergrad though, there was a time where I was listening to Drake and Sahara Ahmed at the same exact time. And I think it was Sahara <laughs> Ahmed first. <laughs> like I was going, like I used to listen to gangsta rap when I was like 14, like an angsty teenager. And then I started to get away from it because they're just so vulgar. And so then I got into The weekend and Drake because they talked about emotions. And then I was like, okay, I can't be depressed listening to these people. So then I moved to Sahara Ahmed because also like the live music, like the beats and the lahanka and stuff, yeah. it was just so hype. So it was like, it was fun. I didn't understand anything she was saying, but I just remember I always used to listen to Sahara Ahmed. And then I don't even know honestly when it took off, but so that was maybe 2011, 2000. And then, but after Hargeisa the first time, that's when... It was wholeheartedly Somali music. And then now if you look through my phone, there's not too many English songs. Like after that <laughs> year, everybody's like, well, how could I? Like my cousin still cries. Monica used to send me all the hottest tunes. And I'm like, how? Like I grew up and the rappers still didn't grow up. You know, they're talking about the same things that I was talking about when I was, two, I was, like, when I was 13. So I think for, um, so I, I don't even know what I listened to in Hargeisa. But even the other day, I posted this mix, right? Like, I made that mix about the cities. And I remember yeah. 2016, I used to, everyone, all my favorite songs, everybody knew, right? Because I used to play it all the time at the office. And then when we were in the car, like, you know, being driven home, everyone, I used to make them play my songs. So, like, to that, like, Abdelkader Hesti Hargeisa Uqadai. I used to listen to that all of 2016. <laughs> and then I used to also show everybody, like, Nakruma, there's this riwayat that they did in Toronto that we posted on Is- uh, Isid Music. Um, and yeah. it's Nakruma, Alan Haristo, Khadr Dahir Ege, Abdelkadir Chuba, Hassan Adan Samata, and um, the other guy, I think like Mustafa, the guy who sings D. Leia, or another random guy who sings that song. So she has this song, and I. And she was just dancing on stage like a wild woman. Yeah. And yeah, and I was like, vibes. And then I think even a couple years, um, when it's Sada Ali and Qamar Harawa and Hibanura and then famous Sheikh Tahir. That was the first Somali song, actually. I tried to relearn. I used to listen to it every single day until I learned the words. And that, I was like, yo, first of all, vibes. Like, their clothing. <laughs> and a lot, I think a big thing for the Somali music for me is, for like, that Ruwayat A, you see Somali women. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, Hibanura comes in. It's actually very. It's like, can't we be both at the same time? Like, I would like to be both. Like, but also, women should have rights. Like, so they don't need Like, let's do that. Like, um, so the music is nice too, like and I so that reminds, for example, it's like even the aesthetics of it. Yes, Benny Warun. Yep. And then if you are like if you oh my god, do the and like to so like to this day like their love affair like oh still one of my favorite songs. Um, but even like there is now like I really go into I even watched that other one the other day the one with uh Kinsey Hatchie added and then um. 
Now that I understand Somali, I'm just like, oh my God, what the freak was going on at the time? I'm just like, there's so many like things that are just so chaotic. Everyone loved somebody that was not in love with them. Which I think is human nature, but it's also like, even like in, um, I think it was Benewarun, the, or what's the one with the uh, Haurat son, like the uh, uh, Sahara Ahmed and Amina Abdullahi and then Abdul Qadir Chupa mm. and Ahmed Moge. It's just kind of like they're always playing and then there's yeah. or like so I'm like oh they had diaspora problems back then too like <laughs> he comes with big pockets yeah and then they found the diaspora naive again and they were just like you know people were taking advantage of it and then yeah. diaspora were like the dumb people in the room yeah. <laughs> that lost all their money did you see that? That was very, like, subliminal messages. There, there's a lot of, like, subliminal, but also very direct messages. There's even, like, that Ruwayad, mm-hmm. like, um, so even, ha- ha- like, there's, Somalis had such a huge problem between modernity and traditionalism, you know, that they couldn't even, in a Ruwayad, yeah. they're fighting about it, you know. So many Ruwayads are like, yeah, look at ticket. And then they're just like, why are you dressed like this, yeah. Nura? Like, you know. It's not only, and then there's another Ruwayad, I don't know if you, if you remember, this, like, um, it's kind of yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Get Kohostisa, like with Amina Abdullahi yeah, yeah. and like Hassan Gane. Yeah. I just don't remember like, what it was called. I think it's called um, Masiba, yes, it's very interesting. Yeah, he knew what he was doing with this that. They said, Oh, is actually the direct translation of the need necessity necessity is the mother of innovation yeah so that's, that's exactly true what it means yeah that's what it means so masibadu is like it's kind of like dibatada like you know dibka or like you know what necessity so necessity is the mother of opportunities exactly that's what it means and then then you see like the um you know the like, like how People were wearing like you know sama or da da da, and then they wore darki darki, and then they wore darki el you know. Yeah. Even the Somalis are still fighting that, um, you know, darki, you know, yeah, like it. But I think the biggest thing about that that I like about so that's like you asked me about the Somali music, and we kind of like we didn't stray away from it. This is really important. Like that's all of that, right? Mm. Like even in that while, there's a space for conversation, you know, and there's a space where. Both can exist, right? You can wear Surwal Kaka and then you can wear a Guntino. They might not like it, but at least them both being on stage at the same time is saying that, like, you know, there's. And that was accepted. Yeah. And I'm like, I, w- I just want a conversation to be had. And now there's no conversation. It's like, well, it's kind of, that's like, Sidney is Sidney is the ro- rule of law because I said so and that's it. So then what does that do? That gives mm. a society that are just followers, that are people whose agencies are limited, that like, you know, that they can't, we can't, we always say, oh, we don't even have a space for that now because we don't even let people have conversations like we don't let people like challenge things anymore we don't let people even come up with innovative or different ideas if one person does one thing six people are going to copy them so it's not like you know we we, we've lost all of that stuff in a way um all of those traits that i think made somali arts and culture so great back then and that comes with even 
child nimada um like magas i watched this riot the other day and this woman i even posted on instant music because we topped it she was like Awe magaeni. She goes awe, and the guy's like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. She goes awe magaeni. She's like awe tadnimadeni, and he's like, "What are you talking about?" She goes awe magaeni Somalia the sheriff talaha aqimha laha, and then he's like, "No, no, no, Muslim magaikaro," because I think it was right before Dagalki, you know, when they did that. And I was like, yeah. "But that is so. That's the question I'm trying to answer with my work, you know, like, and that's a very real question mm. that I think now because wala wala kulika hoti wala wala nakla, everybody's trying to get used to surviving. There's that space where when your basic needs are met, then you can think about arts and culture and stuff like that, you know, like or prom- promoted, even though I don't think that's true. I think all of those things are a part of us, regardless of where you are in the world and what position you're in. Um, so like, but we we've lost it and we don't v- value it. And so like even me posting like um, the, not to go on a tangent, but on instant music is where I can like really post all of these things and like give a space to like appreciate it or at least like in a. So I have a question: new music or old music? <sighs> old music. Um, new music. I don't even really bang with new music like that. Like in like, but I understand new music. I don't really understand. The, old music. Yeah. I like to be honest with you. I I was always for old music, but I am very supportive of new music at the moment. The only problem is, I don't think we can preserve new music because I don't memorize the new yeah. songs. But I enjoy it. I love it. I actually like. I'm interested in new music. I listen to new music all the yeah. time. But the songs that I can memorize are only the old music, which is well, very no. Weird. But I think no because it's classic, it's timeless. I think the new music, it's hot for five minutes, like Sudan Serar. Like yeah, I mean, uh, even Hamar Billa, I listened to Marmari or Deflakin, but I don't even listen to that anymore. And that was like two, three years old, you know, like. And it doesn't even come to yeah. your head when you like, for example, now yeah, we, in Clubhouse, what we do is like sing sometime, da 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 da. And then the only thing, the songs that I can think of at the top of my head are just the old yeah. songs, even though I enjoy and I know new songs, but I never even think yeah. about it. But I, what I like about when Somalis do stuff like that is that everybody's singing along with you because they all know that's the song. And I think it's even like, yeah. like even when the when the, like older um, Fananin when they used to when they sing, the biggest like. I like The weekend. Like, The weekend used to scream from the bottom of his belly when he first started singing, you know? I like, you want music <laughs> like that, like, but like, you know, that you can understand it, you could feel it, right? So it's like, the music now has no soul. Like, I'm gonna say it like, you know, I'll just own that. But it, it doesn't have soul in the same way. It's a nice song. It's really catchy. You listen to it for a little while, but there's no soul behind it. Like, even the way that, like, in old songs, and then, like, you give a minute for them to play the coven, and then, like, it just all hits mm. and feels. That's why I said, Ahmed, that's why I still watch it, because even, like, I've memorized how the beat works in every single song. So even if I'm not singing the words, I'm like, yeah. like, because. <laughs> And the other thing, everything was defined yeah. back then, as in like the music was very unique yes. to that specific song. Yeah. Now, you wouldn't know which song it is until you hear the words, which is very It's weird. not weird. I mean, it's that keyboard keyboard business that you were talking about. Like I saw Furula in London. He's like, mm. playing on three, four keys, like <laughs> for every song. I know, which is a lie because it's like um, everything's recorded and people are just, you know, miming on the microphone and he's just pretending he's playing. Yeah, but that's, I mean, I think that also begs another question that 
if you know like now you have instant like the music is like instant popcorn you know like you put in the microwave for five minutes and then what they are but then it doesn't taste as good as the one that will cook the popcorn that cooks on the stove for maybe a, like you know an hour or two that is not going to taste the same so like we need like somebody to just like kind of like you know i would really like to create like a somali artist fund like in you know that everyone kind of donates money and then we would kind of like pay artists to kind of do things like because that would be like we need music we need like music to come back in like a good way in like a real way like um there's a bunch of people maybe you should take that initiative i'm gonna start doing such thing because it's very much needed and it's important and it supports the arts and culture and you know funka somalia in general I would conclude. I just wanted to say real quickly that I never got to finish answering earlier was the thing I like about Somali music, especially that really draws me to it is it's not even just about the music. That's a part of it. But I like the visuals as well. But it's because you see Somali women taking up space. And that is the only place that you can see Somali women taking up space in songs that they sang in 1980. So that is also another huge thing that draws me to that and also makes me like have this personal responsibility to want to kind of promote that, like, like kind of continue that. Like past like Khadr has a lot of songs and like and all of this stuff. There's also like, you know, women were... Women had a strong part in the nation-building efforts, you know, like of Dola Dihara and stuff like that. And mm. so it's nice. They were and- very vocal, weren't they? Like yeah. Ali singing for the president, mm-hmm. um, like them singing about love so openly, them like having their own space and like, you know, expressing themselves in such a strong and a powerful way. Yeah. That we don't see anymore, like mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Unfortunately, yeah, it just collapsed with the, I guess, the structure of government. So, um, I would like to conclude my interview with this question. Hey, Amina, her love for 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 the country, for the culture, for the art. What's your next move? Where are you taking this passion and love to? Would you add, or would you? like I would say take from this whole like situation your experience your love your your passion yeah me creating Isterka was a big thing for me like you know and then um like the blog site like so I thought that I thought I was doing something with that but um uh clear it's clearly like all growing and I think like taking shape in so many in a lot of different ways so I think like kind of what we spoke about earlier like I even wrote that down like as one of my goals in the future like to create like a Somali artist fund um or like a creative like hub to like um give out grants to some Somali creatives that are doing things to promote culture I would definitely want to like culture music um I think even like kind of engagement with the country countries I think um it's very important to still kind of bring that alive even if you're in the diaspora so I guess or like kind of like already put it out there like that I'm gonna hold myself to that so inshallah I think the next step would be for Isirka to kind of grow into that like a creative um Somali like you know fund of some sorts so any like benefactors or anybody that got change um that would like to donate um to this you know holla at me that's great um 
I hope you enjoyed me interviewing you, Amana, and not just yeah. you interviewing people. It was and so I fun like to, talk. to make another appearance. Uh, are you going to leave every episode saying that why not Sarnakalo Emika? We she came back from Hargeisa, so we have access to Zahoor. I don't have enough, like you know. <laughs> no, this so is I'll really definitely fun. Definitely be appearing in Isarka a bit more. Yeah, inshallah, absolutely. Well, Anigi's coming. Like basically, I am rebranding my own podcast, um, Kitchen Chat, and we switched it to Anagi to make it more inclusive. And, you know, get more people involved for Anagi, it's us. So, you know, stay tuned for that. It's coming out soon, inshallah. And, yeah. And follow Amina on Clubhouse if you're on Clubhouse <laughs> because we're going to be hosting rooms <laughs> very soon. On there, we have a club called Forward Voices. Follow the club and you will see Amina more often on oh there, God. inshallah. alaikum. <laughs>